Hello, listener, and welcome to the first voyage of the Desert Pirate Radio, where we ask the hard and the soft questions. My name is E, and I will be the host of this show. In this week's show, we will be discussing how to make alcohol-free pasta. We will also be hearing from David on how he believes in God with a life-shortening illness. We will now be running back the clock and talking to Scott. There's a lot of people. Some people love it. Some people hate it. Please tell me about the history and the creation of running. Mmm, yeah. So, as a keen uh, runner myself, I, I do have a lot of, yeah, quite strong opinions about running. Um, so, if we, if we want to think about running now, we obviously have to look at the history and the past. Um, so, running was actually invented about 40,000 years ago. Whoa. So it's got a really long history. Is that before or after sliced bread? That was slightly after sliced yep. bread. Yep. Um, so what actually happened was we had a, a group of humans around um, who were called the, the Neo-Neanderthals. Um, and that was a period in human evolution. Mm-hmm. Um, and they had a really big problem with cave bears. Hmm. So cave bears were this type of... It was a sort of cousin to the brown bear Mm -hmm. that lived in caves um, and particularly delighted in eating people with moustaches. But of course, the Neo-Neanderthals loved their moustaches. So there was this huge conflict of do we run the risk of cave bears... Or do we get rid of this socially and culturally uh, just absolutely key mm, thing? Significant, yeah. Yeah, this key significance um, to for our safety. And so there was um, one Neanderthal um, called Henrique, I think it was. Um, and historians have found him, actually. Wow. Archaeologists found him. Um, and they found that his legs were actually far more developed than all of the other uh, bones from that time. Mm-hmm. So there was actually larger, much larger bones. Um, and so they have theorized that he was the first man to run. Mm-hmm. And the reason was that he was getting away from the cave bears mm. one day when he realized that instead of walking or cartwheeling, as was custom for his people, I see. he could walk but a little bit faster. Wow. So you said that his legs were more developed. Is there, is this like, was it Enrique? Yes. Enrique leading forward. Has that had an effect? Like, was he just a one-off specimen of abnormally developed legs or did he lead a wave of more developed legs? And well, from what we know of modern physiology, um, we believe that the uh, extra development of his leg was actually uh, caused from his running. Mm-hmm. So because he spent time running and he developed this new skill, um, his legs and his bones actually started to grow larger to enable more. So we think it was actually um, the running that caused it, mm. not his genetics ah, that caused him to have bigger legs. So any, any new cultural phenomena, there's often pushback. There's often people mm. who don't like Absolutely. change. What was it like in neo-Neanderthal culture back then? Yeah. So there was a large group of people that opposed him. And um, the way they did this was really interesting. So to oppose the running, 
they actually started walking everywhere backwards mm. as protest uh, to his running. And that had the unfortunate side effect of them constantly falling off cliffs. Yeah. So, um, unfortunately, the protest did not last very long. I bet. And what is there anything we can we can apply? Anything from this story that can be applied to our 21st century, whether it be techniques of running, whether it can be don't walk backwards, any cultural significance that we can apply to our lives? Mm. Well, absolutely. Like, there's, there's the obvious one of being able to ambulate in faster. No, I'm not concerned um, that. But personally, I think it's really about finding the strength within oneself to go against culture mm. and to say no sometimes. Say, yeah. I'm no, I'm not going to get eaten and I'm going to keep my moustache and I'm going to run. And I think that's what we have to thank Enrique for. What a great way to end this interview. Thank you, Scott. And that's it. Thanks for listening. This was Historical Events That We Just Made Up. Thank you, Scott, for that insight. And now, a word from our sponsor. Are you sick of things not working? Hi, my name is George. I run a six-week course called Use It Properly and Don't Break It. We cover things like plug it into the right hole and why are you banging against the wall? That is not going to do anything. We also cover... Uh, hmm, what? Uh, how, how did you get that? Hmm. And also, look, I don't know how that's working, but if it's working for you, why don't you just leave it there and don't touch it? If you'd like to learn these things, join us now. Something that people don't tell you about the sand timers is actually, it's not, they're not perfectly round at the top. So when the sun hits it, you get all these weird spots. But if you do want to know anything about the sand timer, I've only been here a week, so I don't know everything. But it doesn't seem that bad. There's a little town. There's only four of us, which doesn't make sense because the town looks like it could fit 50 or 60 people. But saying that though, so when you get chucked in the sand timer, um, they tell you, you your sentence is as long as the timer takes to the sand to fall down the little hole. And I can actually see the hole off on the horizon. But I'm not quite... I'm a little nervous about heading out because as I saw the hole and I was like, well, let's go have a look. And as I was about to head out, I realised around the town, it's completely surrounded by desert, um, sand dunes and all. But... There's footprints absolutely everywhere. And I know that, that it wasn't one of us four because we just arrived. We all arrived around the same time. Well, I actually don't know that, but I assume that's the case because everyone seems equally clueless where things are. And if you have any ideas of what I could look at, um, but also if you have any questions about the sand dune, I know that as growing up, I heard, not the sand dune, the sand timer, the, the, the sand timer, it was like a thread. It was where the mystical creatures, where there's, there are dragons and fun games of Monopoly, crazy things like that. But I haven't seen any of them. So, hey, I'm only a week in, so I don't know what is in store for me. But if you have any questions, please let me know. Please write down a message and send it in because I'd love to, I don't even know where to start this exploration. So please let me know what you'd like to find out. Uh, and if you've got any thoughts about the footprints, that would be great too. Anyway, on to our next segment. We will be learning... I realise I said vodka pasta, but in reality, it's actually got no pasta in it. So I'm sorry if you were excited for pasta, but it still sounds pretty good. 
This is Sarah's Smackalicious segment coming your way. Hello everyone, welcome back to Sarah's Smackalicious segment. Uh, today on um, a new recipe, we are thinking about themes and five minute recipes. Around five minutes. So that's what we're gonna try and stick to for these segments. Um, so today we come along with a bit of a savory moment um, with a lunch dish that is quite delectable. Um, and it is uh, like an inspired uh, vodka pasta without the vodka, um, five minute version. Um, and do with that what you will. Um, so basically, all you'll really need, I'm thinking gnocchi would be ideal for a quick recipe like this, as it only takes about two minutes to cook. It would have to be store-bought. You can make it yourself as well, but that'll just take a lot longer. Um, and you can get some really nice sun-dried tomato uh, like paste um, or like mixture from a supermarket just in a jar. Um, it's usually around with the pasta sauces. And get some fresh basil. And um, you can add meat if you want to. You can really add tuna if you want to. Um, but that wouldn't make it five minutes. But if you're not in a rush, you can add whatever protein you like. Chickpeas also work. And um, yeah, so basically take that all home with you. Um, and then... <laughs> Do not cook it in the shop. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> There's not much you need to do for preparation. Um, all you really need to do is just cut up your basil. Um, and you can finely dice it if you want. Or sometimes you could just tear it, which makes it look a bit more aesthetic um so yeah just boil your water and um, follow the instructions on the gnocchi package um and chuck that in usually it only needs to cook for about two to three minutes um depending on what brand you get etc um and meanwhile oh i forgot to mention maybe when you <laughs> When you're at the shops, you can also grab some like um, cooking cream as well to make it creamier. That makes <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. So you can use some cooking cream, um, which will make it more like the vodka pasta. Um, yeah. So cook your gnocchi, heat up your um, sun-dried tomato pesto, and um, mix that up. Um, and add in some pepper, salt, and uh, around 200 mils, 200 to 250 mils of your cooking cream. Mix that up. You can add some parmesan if you want to. Um, and you can add your protein into the sauce or cook it before the sauce. Um, if you want chickpeas, you can add it in then as well. Um, and then mix it all together with the gnocchi. Um, and then tear apart some basil, sprinkle it on top, add a bit of parmesan. And Bob's your uncle. There you've got your uh, kind of quick five-minute-ish um, replica of a vodka pasta. There you are. Bye. The last segment comes with a note that says, had to cut out two minutes of laughter. Anyway, thank you, Sarah, for that segment. Look forward to hearing more from you.
Now we're getting on to the reason you guys are here. The interview with David. So this is part one of six that we'll be spreading over a couple of shows, but we will also be having a Q&A. So spreading it out allows you to have some time, write, write down and send in your questions. And after the series is done, we will be having a Q&A either directly related to the questions or more generally about, I don't know, anything, how to play wheelchair soccer. That doesn't make sense to you, but in a couple minutes it will. So let's meet the man and get into the interview. Welcome to the show, David. Hello. Um, David, what do you do with yourself in a normal week? Um, so at the moment I'm a PhD student in genetics and I'm doing that at my university. Um, I guess the interest for me is that I'm studying my own disease, which is a muscular dystrophy called Duchenne muscular dystrophy. Duchenne is from uh, the French guy who first characterized it in the 1850s or something like that. Um, anyway, my project, I'm looking at my own disease and stem cells and regeneration and things like that. Apart from that, I'm a Christian, I go to church on Sundays, and I've been going to church, the same church, for nearly my whole life, so about 23 years. In my free time when we're doing it, I also play soccer, electric wheelchair soccer, and that's on Sundays. Uh, it's just two teams because there's not a lot of players, but we play in these chairs that spin around really quickly and can hit a ball that's a bit bigger than a soccer ball, so that's quite fun. Um, my team struggles during the season, but we always manage to win the final match, which is quite hilarious because um, there's only two teams, so we always qualify for that. On to the first question. How do you believe in a god while having a terminal illness? Yeah, so I might explain my disease to give people context, um, so it's not quite so vague to them. Um, so, as I mentioned, my disease is a muscular dystrophy called Duchenne muscular dystrophy, or DMD for short. Sim to put it simply, it results in progressive muscle wasting, um, and eventually, at the moment, prognosis means people are living till their 30s and 40s, perhaps. Um, there's a bit of variability, so there's some guy in the Netherlands with DMD who's about 50, and then there's some who are quite young who start having problems. Um, it's not as quick and severe as motor neuron disease as some people might now be aware of from the news and people like Neil Danaher. Um, but it's the same type of outcome in terms of um, muscle deterioration. A stumbling block to believing in God can be the notion of suffering and um, illness because we have this idea of um, God being someone who should help us in the midst of our troubles or should intervene when things go wrong and we all understand certain horrific evils that happen in the world that sometimes you look at and think well if there's a God surely he would have stopped this from happening um, so that's the sort of question I guess more broadly people can think of um, for me for a personal point of view um, the short the short point of how do I believe in God is essentially well um, because he's real but um, 
that's put, putting it a bit too too quickly, too bluntly, perhaps. Um, so I, I guess more the point is um, how how did I come to believe in God despite having my illness and uh, I'm, I've talked to talked to people a bit a bit about it before, but um, I would say f- for me. I had already come to believe in God for a number of factors before I actually came to terms with my own disease. So when I was coming to terms with my own disease and prognosis, it was more, I know God's real, it's do I like God, do I want to be his friend, Um, is he someone I want to trust in? Um, So there's, there's a difference between having knowledge of God's existence and then accepting him to um, lead your life and as you can imagine with an illness like mine um, you, you well I grappled with God in terms of you know the questions of life and how could you let this happen to me sort of thing and it took it took probably a number of years for me to slowly come around to God for, for me, the big thing was thinking about the fact that, um, you know, if, if I didn't, if, if I turned away from God, what did I turn to? And frankly, in my mind, um, there's nothing the world really offers that gives any um, hope and peace of mind. And without God, it just seemed like a world was a, a pretty hopeless place that, you know, um, you have a disease where you can't you miss out on a whole bunch of things that people enjoy f- for fun but then more as a whole concept thinking that well if life is just getting married having kids getting a job and then we all die and the homo sapiens species is going to die one day then what's the point of any of it because we're all going to be forgotten and swallowed up by nature and time essentially time that's probably where i would be in a fairly depressed person without god so I guess getting back to the question about how do I believe in God with a terminal illness, um, it's actually really that without God, I wouldn't have got, I wouldn't get through my terminal illness, to be honest. And for me, I've come to believe in God already. And so I believe in God with a terminal illness um, because I don't, some people have the issue of suffering as being a stumbling block. To me, that is uh, something that can be worked through, and I came to personally work through it and trusting God. And so, really, it's far from well. I have the opposite feeling, which is it's the very presence of God in my life that has helped me in my suffering and my illness, rather than turning me away. You know some some of you listening or whatever may have you know heard of others or yourself experienced this idea of well god can't exist because of suffering um and i would encourage people to to rethink it because for me um as i've been saying you know god in my life is actually what's made the difference and you know i'm a much more open joyful person than i would be um without god and for me, that just attests to the fact that um, 
as humans, our existence is always filled with suffering. Um, and that's just a fact of life. And so to have comfort is something that we all need. And, you know, some people would say, oh, you know, you just believe in God as a crutch or sort of thing. But, you know, when, you, when you're in my position and you're facing a short life, you, um, you, you cut through really quickly into what is, you know, superficial. And frankly, I wouldn't believe in something if I knew it wasn't really real. Um, it's very hard to believe in something fake when you're, fa <laughs> you're in the position of, uh, you know, my life is shortened by 10 years. Um, uh, I think it's a bit, bit naive to think that people would um, so easily just believe in something mm. um, in, my, in my position. Some people perhaps do and are led astray, but for me, um, you know, this faith is not, this is not a crutch for me because um, my trust in God came through, you know, a variety of factors that convinced me God was real and it wasn't feeling sad about my disability that led me to believe in God. Are there any examples that you have of when God has clearly like been a, a source of peace or a if you'd like to hear the answer to that question and more from the interview, check out our podcast exclusive Dessert Pirate Radio. We will also be having a Q&A at the end of this interview series. So write down your questions and send them in. Finally, to wrap up this first voyage, we have question of the week. This is a question that can be a conversation starter or just a personal pondering. The question is, how does your past affect how you think about your future? We will be returning to your eardrums in two weeks time. In the meantime, why not share the show and write in? Thank you very much for tuning in to Desert Pirate Radio.